Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Matt Abbott. Matt Abbott is a poet and activist and frontman of a band as well. You may know Matt Abbott for the Nationwide Building Society adverts on the TV, but there's a lot more to him than that, and we spoke about it all, from fronting a, a band skint and demoralised to starting his own spoken word record label, Nymphs and Fugs. We spoke about this, plus we spoke about his poetry collection, Two Little Ducks. Uh, we spoke a bit about politics and what's coming up for him next. Also, as usual, we spoke about his four heroes to come for dinner. I hope you enjoy this episode. Matt was a fantastic guest, and I'll be back soon with another one. Thanks. Right, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I got Matt Abbott, who is a poet. Oh, uh, <laughs> I've got Matt Abbott, who is a poet who came to light advertising the nationwide adverts, but he's also done a lot of other stuff. He, he's got, you get your own spoken word label. You've Get four albums with Skint and Demoralised, and you get a, a, your own poetry album as well. Amongst lots of other stuff, you've done stuff with kids, blah, blah, blah. We're going to get on to it all. Uh, so, at the start, I'd just like you to get back to the start of your life and what life is like growing up. So, just whenever you're ready, just fire away. Fair enough, mate. It sounds like a therapy session. Um, I guess from the angle of being a poet and doing what I do, uh, I was always obsessed with the lyrics in songs. And I think around the age of 11 in particular, I really became obsessed with it. Um, people of our age or my age or, or older will remember CDs and used to get the album, listen to it from start to finish and read the lyrics of the CD sleeve. And that was always the first thing that I did. And um, around that time, like rap and hip hop was quite popular in the mainstream as well. So I was always just absolutely fascinated with lyrics. Um, but at the time, I didn't really realise... They were all American. It never really occurred to me just because everybody was. And then when I was about uh, 13 or 14, the street, I came across the streets, like the streets debut. Do you know what, actually? I was 12 when the streets came out, weirdly. The uh-huh. streets came out, and then suddenly it was like, oh, this geezer's British. And even though he's talking about drinking brandy and whatever, which obviously I couldn't relate to, I felt like I felt this immense connection. And then through from the streets, then as I got older, I got into, you know, the jam, Billy Bragg, The Cure, and then when I was 16, Arctic Monkeys came out, right? So uh, it felt like it was getting closer and closer to me, and I just, I'd always fantasised about being a singer in a band and writing my own lyrics and telling my own story, but I never really felt like a young working-class lad from Wakey would do that, and I think when Arctic Monkeys came out, that was like, hold on, not like I can do what Alex Turner does, but it felt much less of a leap in terms of the kind of person that could feasibly do that. So I guess that was sort of what led me to pursue it, I guess. But the real turning point actually was, um, I don't know if you know a band called Reverend and the Makers. Yeah. Heavyweight champion of the world and all that, of course. Mm -hmm. So I I was a Reverend and the Makers fanboy, absolutely obsessed. Like followed him around on tour everywhere. And he used to do these short, short bursts of poetry between songs. Like really, like you know, twenty thirty second fast paced rhymey punk, punk poetry type thing, and so I started doing it, copying him basically because I was such a fanboy. And through him, I got into John Cuba Clark, which is where a lot of people start, I guess. Then mm-hmm. I found out that Alex Turner 
has got a Junkie of the Clark tattoo and all the stars just aligned. And so I sort of styled myself as uh, a musical compare. So I would go around the uh, the indie scene because the indie scene was massive at the time. It's nothing like what it is now. Wakefield in particular had a really good venue called Escobar, which I guess is like a small version of what King Tut's used to be. Um, and so I'd get on stage and introduce the bands, but I'd do a poem before each band. Mm-hmm. And nobody expected to hear poetry and nobody I think particularly would want to, but everybody sort of enjoyed it. And I started off as just poem guy. And then I adopted the name Skint and Demoralised. And it just sort of um, picked up loads of pace really quickly. So, and I think the thing that I got a buzz out of was that nobody expected to hear poetry at music festivals and at music gigs and at indie venues. And so I really liked subverting that expecta- expectation. And I really loved the fact that it was such an instant art form. I'm not advocating that you should do this now, but, you know, in theory, I could write a poem in the afternoon and perform it on stage that night. And that's what really thrilled me. And it felt like something that I was able to do. Not that I, you know, believed I was a genius or anything, but like I was obviously fairly good at performing it. And uh, I've always loved playing with words and being obsessed with lyrics. So it felt like something that was immediately sort of within my skill set rather than having to buy an instrument learn how to play each note learn how to play chords learn how to read music you know it's a long road and I'm quite an impatient person so it instantly felt like I had something that I was quite good at and it it meant that I could I could exist in this world of uh, drain pipe jeans and leather jackets and whatever uh, in my own kind of weird way um now, obviously, I look back and, you know, I was probably shamelessly derivative of John, John McClure and John Cooper Clark, but it was just the most exciting thing in the world because this was sort of the thing that I'd always fantasised about. And even though I wasn't in a band, I was on a stage with these bands and I was doing something that I felt at the time was unique and was mine. Now, obviously, I realised that there's loads of performance poets out there and this was not anything new, but in Wakefield in 2006 and 2007, it was. So I got a right buzz out of it and that's sort of how it all started, really. Um, I was never particularly good at English at school. Although I would watch football matches and take notes and write match reports. Um, So I guess I always liked writing. But if you'd have said to me at the age of 15, you're going to be a poet, I'd have laughed in your face. But by the age of 17, I was doing it on stage, which is weird. Very weird. (laughs) So thinking about like Arctic Monkeys and stuff like that, do you you think it was kind of like a Yorkshire or a Northern thing? Because social commentary seemed to be... There's like a lineage, uh, Jarvis Cocker and uh, yeah, yeah, all, all these sort of people. Morris, all kind of northern people. They're like if you Jarvis Morris. I guess it. I guess it, Sorry, yeah. it's sorry. It's uh, I suppose like storytelling in that sense is at the heart of like a lot of working class culture. Like you know, people telling stories, parties or whatever. Like storytelling is a big thing. And I suppose there's a certain way that Northerners do it. There's the whole, like, you know, grim up North stereotype, but you can trace it back to the late 50s, early 60s, like the British new wave of literature and, like, Sheila Delaney and all that. There's always been this, like, Northern kitchen sink realism lineage, as you say. And I think a lot of those writers, I know for a fact that those writers heavily influenced Morrissey and then in turn influenced Alex Turner, for example. So I guess being a Yorkshire lad, there was a wealth of material to inspire me straight away. And I suppose it does naturally play into our sensibilities i guess but at the time like the nme called it new yorkshire um mm-hmm. so as well as arctic monkeys you know you had like reverend the makers pigeon detectives kaiser chiefs sunshine underground like loads of bands all um based in 
West or South Yorkshire. So I, I didn't realise how lucky I was. <laughs> uh, you could turn up to Escobar on a Friday night or Saturday night, not not knowing who was playing and not arranging to meet up with anybody. And you knew that there was going to be a good band and you're going to get good chat. So like, I didn't realise how lucky we were really, but that, that was the world that I sort of managed to find a place for myself on stage doing something that I found really exciting. And uh, I never really wanted to let that go, to be honest. So... Obviously, you're saying that you kind of get into it through the music scene. Am I right in saying then that you you didn't go to university or then you didn't no. get in that education in that kind of format, really? So when I was when I started performing on stage, um, I was studying A levels at sixth form. But if I'm entirely honest, it was just because I, I finished school at sixteen, I didn't really know what to do next, and that was just like mm-hmm. a fairly obvious and easy thing to do. Um, and then not long after I turned 18, I'd, I'd been uploading my poems to MySpace Music, uh, reference for the kids there. Yeah. And, uh, this uh, songwriter producer from Sheffield found me on MySpace and he had a load of instrumentals that he'd been working on and they'd got like demo of a week in NME and stuff. And he'd been looking for vocalists to work with because he'd fronted his own bands for a few years and, and sort of become frustrated by it. And he wanted a project where he wrote and produced the music and somebody else did the lyrics and, and the vocals. And, you know, he'd approached, like, Paloma Faith and Kate Nash and Adele, you know, way before they were who they are. And unfortunately mm-hmm. unfortunately for him, it was me that bit. So uh, <laughs> this was just as I was just as I was leaving sixth form, um, we started writing songs together, and that's what became Skint and Demoralised. So I'd sort of agreed with my mum that I was going to do a gap year, and I got a job working at First Direct in the call centre, which is where she worked. Um, I was just going to sort of do that as a gap year and then go to uni. Not a gap year, as in like travelling around the, you know, Africa or whatever on a white savior mission, but just like, uh, I don't know, just to figure out a plan, I suppose, because I got three C's at A-level, which mm-hmm. didn't give me a lot of options. Um, and it was, whilst this was happening, we, the band just, it just absolutely went crazy and we ended up signing to Universal. So right. that sort of negated the need to go to uni, basically. So... I mean, as you, you, I mean, you touched on Mike Skinner earlier. I was, I was listening to the first album just before I came on, and obviously I've not listened to it in a, a good couple of months, and that's yeah, yeah. About it. it. It reminded me of the streets. Um, what well, our first I album? I have, I love and love the <laughs> Yeah, mate, I've not listened to that for years, to be honest. Yeah, I listened to yeah. that. I mean, I listened to the first, I listened to your last album earlier the day, but I went back and listened to the first album, and it, it did, it, it struck me how much of Mike Skinner was in it, really. Yeah, totally. And and this is this is a thing like in when you, I was so early in my career as a writer. Like you, you do, I think, wear your influences on your sleeve a lot more, obviously, before you sort of find your own voice. And I think it's a double-edged sword, really, because in a way, um, I think there's that, that you're not writing with any preconception. You write, you're writing with complete freedom. And I think there's a certain magic that you can never recapture. And the more you write and the, the longer you're writing, you can, the further you are from being able to get that back, which is a great, but then at the same time, you maybe more obviously derivative if you know what I mean so it's maybe a catch-22 but yeah no I was always obsessed with the streets I just I, I never thought that music could sound like that and now you know after the streets you discover people like Squeeze or uh, Orange Juice for example uh, not Orange Juice um, uh, uh, Arab Strap um, 
you know, stuff like that. But like for me at the time, like the streets was the first of its kind. So yeah, no, of course, I, I always love the streets. So how obviously you said at the time that the, that guy contacted you and he had music and he was wanting lyrics put to it. So <coughs> how does that work? <clears throat> Sorry. How does that? How does that work? How's that kind of process evolved into like the fourth album? Is it still kind of the same process? Yeah, yeah. We've never, we've never ever written together in the same room. Like right at the very start, he had these instrumentals, and he took my recordings and basically chopped them up and put them on top of the instrumental. So like you know, edited the timing or looped certain lines for a chorus or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would maybe make a couple of tweaks, and that would become the song. And then as we started writing together a little bit more, it might be that I had a lyric idea. So I just recorded myself saying a lyric into my phone and he wrote music in response to it. But it's either one or the other. I write a lyric and he writes an instrumental or he sings me an instrumental and I write a lyric for it. We've never written together in the same room. It's always been completely, um, completely different. And now obviously the fourth album is a world away from mm. that first one. But yeah, that's just how we work, and I, I don't think we'd be able to do it in the same room. I just don't. I mean, I I don't think I'd be able to write on demand like that. I think we're both quite private in the way that we write, which is weird. But we just have this unique understanding of each other, and obviously, I've learned a lot from him. So when he first approached me, I was eighteen and he was thirty-six, and he, you know, at this point, he'd been making music his whole life. I was only just starting out, but we just sort of get each other. We just have this understanding. So I've, you know he made me a better lyricist and helped me with a bit of a musical side of it, like the timing or whatever. But yeah, we're quite lucky really, that it just fell into place. And in a weird way, no, not in a weird way. I, I just wish that we'd actually had a bit more time to develop because he met, he approached me in the April. We wrote this track called Red Lipstick uh, pretty quickly and made a video for that in like the September Mm -hmm. And it was over the Christmas period that the major labels were all over us. And so we signed a record deal in March 2008. And it was literally nine months after he messaged me on MySpace. Right. So, like, in a way, I wish we'd actually had a little bit longer to develop. And I'd had more time to develop. It, it all happened so quick. Um, but, you know, at the time, it was very exciting. Right. Of course. So, obviously, see when, see when you're writing stuff as well, that's might be going about forward or whatever further forward but see when you're writing poems or other stuff or whatever do you do you sit down and say i'm going to write something for scant demoralized or are you writing a poem or does does stuff just happen and you think that'll go to that or what it's it's a little bit of both it's a little bit of both um i feel i've, I've been working i'm a bit rusty with it all because i've been writing a novel for just over three years which is obviously the same projects that you keep adding and adding and adding but sometimes mm. sometimes when like for example when we were writing the last album like gledel might uh gledel he's he's the, the the other half he might suggest an idea sometimes an idea would just come out of nowhere, but it's it's a little bit of both. You, you can't just rely on divine intervention to just land in your head all the time, but you also can't sit down with a moleskin and try and like map it out on a spreadsheet type thing. It's, it's a little bit of both, really. You've got to try and find the time for writing and try and give yourself the headspace so that a lyric might come. But at the same time, it can't be too contrived, you know? And I think, well, I'll tell you what it is, right? The, if he sent me instrumentals that excited me, that would make me want to write a lyric for that instrumental. So like we, we really would egg each other on. 
And like, if I'm sending him lyric ideas, he sends me more instrumentals. And the more instrumentals he sends me, the more lyric ideas I send him. So we sort of really egg each other on remotely. But it's that excitement. And I think if, if I'm excited about, because all four of the albums musically sound quite different, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that each time it really excited me. And I think that just means that, you know, when you stood at the bus stop or washing up or whatever, the thing in the back of your mind is lyric ideas. Um, and I, I suppose it's the same with writing poems or, um, or whatever. But I, I say I sort of I'm only able to write within the confines of a project. So, for example, my collection Two Little Ducks, like it's a specific set. It was the show was a sequence of twenty two poems with three strands in, and I can only sort of write within that. And like I can write within an album or write within a novel. I can't just spontaneously write something for no. Well, every now and again I do. So I think having him there egged me on. Um, and maybe my poetry is a little bit more methodical, but that's perhaps out of necessity. But with a skint album, it was always just excitement because every time we decided we we're going to call it a day, like we split up after the first album and then mm. started writing the second album straight away, split up after the second album. You know what I mean? Like every time we, we were going to call it a day. And so that excitement of getting it back was what drove us on, really. But is, so what was the reason why you... Why you get splitting up? Did you just <laughs> you know? Did you know Frank there was legs? Um, so, I mean, the first the first time, obviously, we'd had this mad journey where we'd been signed to Universal, um, and it that was, you know, we were on. I think we were only signed to the label for about eighteen months or something, and when that all went to shit. They'd sort of convinced us that they were going to drop Skint and Demoralised and they weren't going to release any Skint and Demoralised material, but they did want to keep us both on if we maybe released something just under my name, Matt Abbott, and we ended up writing some new tracks that were totally different musically, but some where we sort of started out. And so it felt like Skint was dead. And then as soon as we washed our hands of the label, we realised that Skint wasn't dead. So we did the second album mm. and then became a bit disenfranchised by it. And I, I, I don't know, like, my life was changing a lot. His life was changing a lot. It just always felt like it was time to walk away. But obviously that itch never quite went. And uh, particularly the last time, I mean, Christ, it came out of nowhere. It was six years between the third and fourth album. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that. It's good. It's good. If I'm excited by it and he's excited by it, it'll happen. Yeah, that, that, that sounds brilliant. So, well, expect another album in the next um, five years. There will, there definitely will be. I, I need to finish writing this novel. I can't write anything else until it's finished, but I'm hoping to finish it by the end of this calendar year. So, I'm in an ideal world. Next year will be spent writing new skint lyrics, new poems, whatever. But mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see. On to your poetry, which I'm right in saying you 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 took your show to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. Uh, did you do Edinburgh Fringe before nationwide? adverts came about i did a week in 2015 um and i felt like the reason i did a week in 2015 was just i felt like i was progressing well with my poems i felt like i was reaching new levels and i just sort of wanted to test myself on what i saw as the the toughest stage Mm -hmm. because you know edinburgh fringe is brutal right so i did this week run in 2015 and it went pretty well i sold out a few times it was only a tiny venue Sold out a few times, got some five-star reviews. And that just gave me a bit of validation, really. But it was only a week's run. And it wasn't really a show. It was just like a, a crafted hour-long set list, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but when the nationwide advert happened in 2016, I got um, a big, a big chunk of money. And all I really wanted to do was invest in my career, invest in myself. And so I thought, oh, I can do a full, I can do a full run at Edinburgh Fringe. I can do Underbelly Cowgate. I can blah, 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 you know, bells and whistles, whatever. Um, in hindsight, I wasted a lot of the money and I wish I'd not done X, Y, and Z, but I did learn a lot from it. And ultimately creating two little ducks and touring in 2018 and publishing the collection or whatever, I know it made me a lot better as a writer and as an artist and as a person. So, like, I'm, I'm glad that I did it. I'm just frustrated at the way that I did it. But, you know, you can only learn by making a mistake, can't you? But that's what I wanted to do Edinburgh Fringe because the thing is, as I've said to you earlier, you know, I started off performing in music venues and at music festivals or whatever. That's where my poetry existed. And I sort of kept that going for quite a long time, like performing in this musical world or at festivals or a lot of political rallies. So like the traditional poetry world of submitting to journals and getting published, that just never seemed like it was for me. And this is one of the reasons why I set up Nymphs and Thugs, the spoken word record label, because I just wanted an alternative outlet for poets who wanted to publish something that that was like a finished piece of work that was produced to a high standard, but that wasn't a book. Um, I got into poetry through listening to it, but, you know, most poets, there might be only three or four videos on YouTube and they're really badly recorded and it's not really representative of their best work. So that's why I wanted albums to be an option, but also to be brutally honest, when I did that week's run in Edinburgh Fringe, I wanted something to be a sell after the show because it's so expensive to do Edinburgh, right? So... I just had these CDs that I'd sort of self-published, but then thought, well, if that's worked for me, it's going to work for other people. And the label sort of grew from there, really. Um, but yeah, Edinburgh is a, it's sort of like boot camp in it, but it, it's just a shame how expensive it is. You can do it in cheaper ways, but you, I don't think you can do it cheaply at all. And it, it's just getting worse and worse. And it, it's becoming harder and harder for people to do it unless you know, they've got significant backing from either a theatre or a trust fund or, or whatever. Well, that, which is a shame. I think I've seen that they were bringing in rules about uh, people renting their, their houses and that up here. Oh, you know, so mate, it's the same. Make it tougher. Yeah. So, like, the nationwide advert thing was, like, because that, that's kind of where I first seen you. That's where you came to, to like for me. But was there any backlash for that? Was it, like, a demand? Oh, you sold it and whatever. It was poetry Brexit. <laughs> and uh, I was the Nigel Farage figure in that situation. Um, so, yeah, I was one of the first three people to do it. So it was myself, Holly McNish, who's a massive poet, and a poet called Sugar Jay. We were the first three to do it. Um, and for some reason, I sort of became the poster boy for it. So BuzzFeed produced this article that was is there more to British poetry than these terrible rhyming adverts? And they used a picture of me on the article. And mm. so whenever people were arguing on Facebook or Twitter, which in the poetry world, everyone got involved in it. It was this raging, you know, when you see a thing on Facebook and there's like 200 comments and all these angry red yeah. emojis or whatever. Yeah. It just, at the time I seemed to be the poster boy for it, but uh, I just didn't, I didn't get involved at all. I understand why people would um, say that it's selling out. And I understand why, people would take issue with it but I think the vast majority of it was jealousy and um, to be honest like if you write poetry for a living and somebody offers you a life-changing sum of money to write a poem mm -hmm. it seems silly to say no and, and the thing is right 
I, if it was for say like Shell or BP or whatever, I get it. But like Nationwide's a building society. It's not even a bank. It's a building society. So like, it's a company. So it's an organization that I'm happy to have my face on. And also the poems weren't even about Nationwide. It wasn't like come down and get yourself a savings account today. You know, they were just like normal poems. So I was happy to be a part of it, and um. It changed my life. It changed my career and it changed my life. So I've got no regrets. But yeah, it was still get stick for it now sometimes. I don't really care, to be honest. But no, yeah, it was a bit crazy. Well, I thought it was magic. When, I, when I've been speaking to people at work and telling them that I've got you in the podcast, it's the first thing I say. I say the guy for the Nationwide advert. <laughs> they know right away who it is. So what happened then? You made the album Two Little Ducks. Is that right? Obviously, that's what you were doing with the. I basically, yeah, so I ended up doing a full run at Edinburgh Fringe in 2017. Mm -hmm. And the version of Two Little Ducks that I did at Edinburgh Fringe was, wasn't actually the finished version, but I don't think I'd have been able to create the finished version without doing Edinburgh, if you know what I mean. So I sort of rewrote it, and then this is utterly ridiculous. I did a 22-day UK theatre tour in October, November 2018, because obviously Two Little Ducks has been go slang for 20 so I was like, it's got to have 22 dates on it. Idiot, mm -hmm. stupid idea, right? And uh, somebody approached me, an indie publisher approached me and said, would you be interested in publishing Two Little Ducks as a collection? And at this point, I'd been writing for 12 years and I didn't have a collection. So I was over the moon. So we published it just as the tour was starting. So obviously I was selling books on the tour. So I'm really glad that that, and then, you know, as, as you mentioned, I did release it as an album as well. because I like people having the opportunity to listen to it. But the finished product the finished product that's in the book and that was on that tour I'm really proud of and I'm really pleased it happened and I'm not convinced that that would have happened without the nationwide advert and even though like I say I made a lot of mistakes on the way and I didn't spend the money as as wisely as I, I could have done in hindsight it came to me at a crucial moment in my career so I am I'm very grateful for it and they gave us a mortgage so I can't I can't argue not because of the advert they just did <laughs> And so, so you'll be protected with all these mortgages, as you saying, or they'll look after you, I'd imagine. I don't think I get any special treatment, to be honest. I don't, I don't, it's not quite, it's not that quite that much of an arrangement, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, was this the tour then? I heard you on another podcast, and you were talking about you took us on tour, and obviously, your poem Red, White, and Blue, yeah, with the Union Jack, you did it in Glasgow, and you. Then they get done. <laughs> I did. I did um, it in. Uh, I did, was it stereo? I think it was stereo. Yeah, it was a Friday yeah. night in Glasgow, and uh, it was yeah, it was a Friday night, and you know we, we were obviously we were headlining, so people had, had a couple of bevies, and uh, you know I got the flag out and held it up and did this poem. And the thing is, right, I'm not. I I, I I'm 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 aware of sectarianism and, and the, t the tensions in, and I didn't want it to come across as insensitive and like me, oh, I'm an English man, I'm just going to get this flag out. Like, I was aware that it was pr provocative but I'm, I'm hoping that the content of the poem like made that quite obvious and I, you know, I'm not a British nationalist by any stretch of any imagination, I'm just talking about what the flag represents and if anywhere in the UK is aware of the, the potency of a flag, it's Glasgow, right? So well, that's what I do it and it... <laughs> I, I yeah. mean, the, the poem, that's the exact point of the poem, though, isn't it? It tells you what it represents. Yeah. It represents different things to different people. And that's, I mean, like, yeah. I would be on the, the I don't like the flag 
I'm on that side of the camp. Um, so I cannot. You can understand why people would boo it, but they, they need to understand yeah. why it's there. It's it's no you throwing it in their face and trying to be provocative. Provocative. It's about you making a point and reading your poem and trying to get people to understand that. Uh, so <laughs> I mean, because it is, it's up here. Up here, obviously, we've had Brexit, but we've had Brexit and we've had um, a referendum. So. The the country yeah. fractured anyway. Yeah. So yeah, things like that 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 flag means so much to so many people, and it, it's I, I find it horrible, and it's everywhere now. It seems it's to bizarre, be, really. No, I get that. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be like obviously the, the Queen died there, and that's all you've got in the tail is this flag everywhere, and everybody's met it. It's always yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, two little ducks. If people aren't aware of the 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 poems, obviously they follow a structure of kind of free narratives, don't they? Uh, could you explain yeah. that? It's probably the least commercially viable <laughs> three strands anyone's ever put together. Basically, the first strand is me trying to understand why a lot of working class communities voted leave because. I'm from Wakefield, and Wakefield voted 66% leave. And I'm also uh, like got a coal mining heritage, uh, and a lot of people in the coal mining community voted leave. And I was at a festival, and somebody was like, oh, anyone who voted leave is just a thick racist northerner. And mm. I wanted to challenge that. Now, obviously, I know that some people who voted leave were thick and racist, right? And it, it was I was trying to find the nuance and basically understand why so many people did. And ultimately, I saw it as an anti-establishment thing, right? But at the same time as the EU referendum, uh, a couple of times I went over to Calais to volunteer at the jungle. Um, the time I was invited, I was just invited over by the National Union of Teachers. They wanted somebody to lead poetry workshops in the jungle because nobody there spoke English as a first language, but pretty much everyone did as a second language. Like loads and loads and loads of different languages, but everyone had English as a second one. Uh, but once I've been there once, I kept going back a few times just like on my own. And so... Whilst the Brexit was, you know, raging in the UK at the same time, 22 miles from Dover, there was this Calais jungle camp, which at the time there were like 12,000 people in there. And it was just, I couldn't get my head around the fact that that was happening now. It wasn't some like grainy World War II documentary. It was happening now. So I was talking about that. Um, and then the third strand is kitchen sink realism that sort of like uh, writes about the issues but metaphorically if you know what I mean and it's a bit of a stick or twist scenario like if you're presented with this ultimate like an ultimatum you've got a stick or twist what would you do and so I suppose with Brexit we voted to twist in Scotland you voted to stick just and anyone who's ended up in Calais voted to twist you know and it, it's all relative in it right you know it's this whole you know hashtag first world problems but I was just interested in that concept of when you're forced into a situation that's literally life-changing what you're going to do. And so that's, that's what the show was about, but uh, it's obviously quite, it, even me explaining it there, it's quite complicated, but when you weave them all together, I that, well, the feedback was that it did sort of work. It was this, it, even though they were three completely different strands, like the, the essence of it sort of weaved together. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I really loved that process and 
I never want to be able to do that without Edinburgh because because whenever whenever I did a gig, right, if I did a twenty minute set list, I'd always do poems that were funny, and then a sad poem, then a funny poem, then a sad poem, then a funny poem, and I'd always rely on humour to ease my nerves. So I'm like, I can quite naturally quite funny on stage, and I'd rely on that laughter as like guaranteed approval. When you do a serious poem, everyone sits there scowling at you, right? <laughs> and so your natural mindset is, oh, they hate it, they hate it, they hate it. And so when I first did Two Little Ducks up in Edinburgh, it was like a poem about the refugee camp, a poem about Brexit, and then a silly one just to make me relax. And by the end of it, by the end of the run, I was like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. I can't do these silly poems because it totally belittles the serious ones. Uh-huh. So I actually had it in my system that I was able to do an hour-long show where nobody was expected to laugh at any point. And actually quite a lot of it was quite dark, but feel comfortable doing it. And so that made me a hell of a lot better as a writer and as a performer. And I think it gave me the confidence to go a bit further writing about the subject matters, not just writing about the first thing that comes to mind, but really, really sort of like immerse myself in these strands, which sounds pretentious, but as a writer, it's an important thing to learn how to do, basically. So, yeah, it was like the most expensive boot camp you've ever been on, but mm. I'm better so, off for it in hindsight. So see, during that then, did was there a noticeable difference in audiences, like depending yeah. on where you did it? Yeah, so when I was programming it, I uh, I deliberately went for areas that were either very high remain or very high leave. Like I really wanted to mix it up. And the whole point of the show was that I didn't want to just uh, preach to the converted. So like Edinburgh Fringe in general is a sort of like white liberal middle class, as in a, in terms of the audience, unfortunately, that's a lot of makeup. And I was like, well, there's no point me coming up here and doing a show saying, isn't Brexit stupid? <laughs> like I wanted to sort of ruffle the feathers. And so I thought on this tour, some people are going to come to it and really love the fact that I'm talking about reasons why people voted leave, but perhaps feel a bit uncomfortable with the content about refugees. And then other people are going to really like appreciate the stuff about refugees, but feel uncomfortable with the fact that I'm saying, well, actually, there's a lot of good reasons to vote leave. So either way, I was pissing someone off. But, uh, <laughs> but I think people responded to it. And the fact that I was trying to trying to find the nuance and, and trying to be honest about it and say, look, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just putting across this point. I think people found it quite refreshing. And I did get, obviously, I did get stick and I had people walking out and I had people giving me stick or whatever. But in general, people seem to appreciate it as something that was refreshingly honest and, and nuanced. And the mad thing about my Edinburgh Fringe run is I was doing these poems about going to Calais less than a year after I'd been. So I'd not even properly processed it all, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate, I hate the idea that people think I went to Calais deliberately to write these poems, like as like a white saviour, or I'll write a poem about it and that'll change everything. I was invited there by the NUT, and having been there, I couldn't not write about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, I know that I've got the right reasons for doing it. So I, yeah, I'm glad I did it. And then the 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 last Skin and Demoralised album, We Are Humans, sort of continued the same themes but maybe framed them in a slightly different way but um mm-hmm. yeah because i mean the country is still incredibly divided after brexit and unfortunately the refugee crisis is still well it's only worse and and, and now you know with the government deporting people to rwanda and yeah a terrorist today uh throwing a petrol bomb at a, 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 a immigration center in dover like it's it's um crazy times but i guess a poet's a poet's job <laughs> is to maybe 
try well, and make sense I mean, of them. I seen just on the news the other the other day a couple of days ago, whatever it said that there was record amounts of migrants uh, crossing the crossing the channel this year. Yeah, yeah. And you you kind of you have to get into their mindset of what it, what it must be like because like why else would you want to come to this fucking shithole and like the the places it's worst and there's still people want to get here because the thing is no. No one's gonna, no one's gonna get on a, a little dinghy or you know an over, an overflowing boat to travel across the channel. But they're risking their lives. No one's gonna do that unless they're desperate. But the thing is, right? Even just to get to Calais, yeah. You know, even just to get there, they've 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 crossed borders illegally. They've potentially walked thousands of miles. They've left everything they knew behind. They might have left family members behind. They might have seen people killed. Like they've risked their life even just to get to Calais. They're coming from the Middle East, they're coming from Africa, they're coming from do you know what I mean? Like so even to get to that point is one thing. To then make the little journey across from Calais to Dover, you can you can see the cliffs of Dover from Calais. Mm-hmm. It uh, like, you know, just to get that far and, and then to risk the lives obviously on these boats, like it's 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 horrendous. Um yeah, yeah. it's 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 so bleak. It has. And and that's but that's the thing. Like once you get here and you kinda of, you look at the state of this country and if it was MDL I'd be like, why the fuck have I came here? Why the fuck have I came to this? Um <laughs> Well yeah, there is that. There is that. <laughs> oh well, Richie Sunak's in Charles now it'll be a, it'll be a, a wee bit better, I'd imagine, eh? It's it's just a total bonfire. <laughs> eh, so I mean, on that lighter note, obviously, you started doing the stuff for kids. How did that come about? Uh, somebody knew me from a previous life, and basically there's this museum in Halifax in West Yorkshire called Eureka, which is the National Children's Museum, and they wanted a poem to commemorate their 25th birthday. And so this person approached me and said, would you be up for writing a poem for Eureka? And at that time, I'd only ever written sweary political stuff. I was like, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. So I wrote the poem for Eureka and shared it on Facebook. And then somebody who'd been a fan of the band back in the day and lived in Dubai, worked at a publisher, worked at Bloomsbury, the publisher, saw this poem on Facebook and was like, oh, I bet he'd be great at writing kids' poems. And so put me in touch with the UK commissioning editor for Bloomsbury and set up a meeting, which for me is absolutely crazy because, you know, Bloomsbury are a massive publisher. But Mm. I was shitting it because writing kids' poetry was not something that I did. So we had a meeting and she liked the cut on my jib and said, well, can you send me five five of your favourite kids' poems by next week? So I panicked and wrote five. And she was like, great, I want to commission a collection. But <laughs> that's changed my life as well, you know, because I do so much work in schools. Like my bread and butter, most of my income is in schools, right? Um, and that's something that I already did. But having my own poetry to bring into the schools, it makes a huge difference. And I love writing for kids. I love working with kids. It's absolutely brilliant. It's, it's, it's one of my favourite things that I do. And it's a, you know it's a world away from the angry political stuff, which I guess I need for my own mental well-being. Yeah. Uh, but also, it's making a difference in a different way. Like, um, so yeah, no, I love writing the kids' stuff. It's brilliant. I, I'm I'm eager to write some more. But it's 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 so drastically at odds with my uh, my <laughs> output for adults, my grown-up output. It's so, but you know. Well, that's I managed to manage the balance for two. I found what I found one online on YouTube. Um, from the, the kids' stuff, uh, which I listened yeah. to today. But obviously, like, the title of Hurricane in my head 
I was thinking about that because obviously my my little my oldest boy's autistic. I don't know if that that kind of came into it. That sort of thinking because that's what I think is autism, like the way they feel. There's a hurricane yeah. in the head sort of thing. Was that was that any thoughts to that when you were? Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's because a lot of it is about the transition from primary school to secondary school and mm-hmm. just dealing with prepubescent thoughts and social media and gender stereotypes and whatever um the book is i'm hoping like a friend and a, an antidote for people that expect i mean that age from you know 11 to 13 which is the target age group is such a is such a, a mad age and yeah. i i wouldn't want to say this is this I, I wouldn't be uh ignorant enough to say oh this is perfect for people with autism because that's not something that i'm a specialist in but uh it's definitely sort of leaning towards um, the minds, you know, I mean, like I say, I don't think yeah. anybody has a smooth transition at that age, do they? So, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, I struggle with, we struggle with a boy as a teenager and the autism as well. So like, you can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't deal with bits of, of what. So yeah, I see that makes complete sense. Now that, now that you frame it like that, Obviously, there's so much going on in an adolescent's head at that age. I, I yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, you're you're doing a lot of this work then in schools. When when did the record label come about? Then was is, was that ongoing then? Right for I think you mentioned at the start where it's getting demoralised, and that's when you started the record label then. Oh no! So I um I basically I produced a CD to take to Edinburgh Fringe in 2015 to sell after the shows uh-huh. because I wanted something to be at sale and I couldn't see myself ever being published in print. Um, and after Edinburgh Fringe in 2015, when I told these CDs, I thought, well, other poets might want to do that as well. Um, and so I wasn't really sure what to do. And then a poet that I really admired put something on Facebook and said, oh, I've got these recordings. I want to release them somehow. And I sort of pounced on it. So I just took it from there, really approached poets that I liked or admired and said, look, you know, I can't promise you any riches or anything, but if you've got material that you'd like to record, I can release it on CD. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't do CDs anymore, but, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever. And 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 like Tori Agarbot, for example, one of the poets on the label, she tours with John Cooper Clark, and she now has two poetry collections, but for a while before she was published, she made loads of money selling the CDs. And it, it makes a big difference. And also a lot of people would get into poetry by listening to it rather than reading it to begin with. And particularly the poets that I work with, they're so good at delivering their work. I just wanted that to be an option, really. And um, it's sort of, I've got to be honest, it's, it's sort of on the back burner a little bit at the moment, the label, because uh, I'm a new dad and you know I'm finding it hard to write as it is. But I just always loved, I never thought it would uh, make a load of money or anything. I just saw it as a gap in the market, basically. And it's, it's not the first spoken word record label in the world. Um, Motown actually had a spoken word imprint back in the seventies. You know, it's and, and like you know, Def Jam poetry obviously put a lot of um, performance out there. Um, but I, in the UK, on the sort of alternative spoken word scene, there was nothing like it. So I thought I'd give it a go. Yeah, I mean that, that's admirable that to to go and do something like that yourself. To go and kind of set that up to help yourself and other other people I think that's amazing I think like for for, um, for a poet uh, you know for a creative type 
I'm quite good at like projects and managing and accounting and doing a website and doing social media and doing that side of things, whereas a lot of creatives are just not good at it. And so I feel like I've got so much out of poetry. Um, I feel like it's only right for me to use those skills that I have to put back in, which I know sounds a bit cheesy and people might think I'm I'm talking shit, but like I, I recognise that's a skill that I've got. And I, I, poetry in general is so important to me, but I wouldn't feel right investing a hundred percent of my time and energy in myself. If you know what I mean, like mm. I want to, I want, I want to contribute to the bigger picture. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's it's a labour of love, and you know sometimes it's been really hard work, but also some things that I'm really proud of. Um, we did this project called Disarm Hate, which uh, it was released on the five year anniversary of the Orlando nightclub massacre, um, mm-hmm. in which uh, you know a gunman opened fire and killed a lot of LGBTQ people in Florida. And I basically commissioned 16 leading LGBTQ poets from around the world to respond to it. But we also had uh, audio clips from the Disarm Hate documentary, which went out in LA. And like, so I interspersed the documentary clips with the poems and we put that out on double vinyl and the proceeds went to LGBTQ charities. But mm-hmm. even just that as like a time capsule, political response, that like I'm not a member of the LGBTQ community myself, but I'm an ally and I wanted to, just create a space for that to exist if you know what i mean yeah i mean anything that shows that you're that there's there's people there that will get a bit of empathy for them i mean that that must help just knowing that yeah so i mean you get there's so much other stuff that you've you've done um just i'd like (laughs) kind of touching like you've 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 done some stuff for uh leeds united i'm led to believe (laughs) and as well as that, all your dream come true. Yeah. Some rugby league stuff as well. Is that right? Yeah, I'm currently um, organising and delivering some workshops as part of the Rugby League World Cup's cultural program. Yeah, that they wanted their libraries and cultural team just wanted creative writing workshops in response to the tournament. So mm-hmm. that's something I'm doing at the moment. Um, I, I do like rugby league, and I'm from Wakefield, so I'm aware of how powerful rugby league is. But I'm absolutely die hard hardcore football obsessive and always have been so being asked to write the poem for Leeds United's uh, centenary kit launch was mind-blowing to be honest Um, something I'm immensely proud of Uh, yeah I've I've written a few things for Leeds United but I think that's 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 the main one Um, the centenary kit launch poem yeah Mm -hmm. as well as that I wanted to touch on like current affairs like the stuff that's going on just now and the world, well, and and Britain, and then the world. I suppose after that, I mean, like as as I mentioned earlier, the countries have a total bonfire at the moment. Does that, yeah, that does that give you material for poems? Like obviously, like, with two little ducks being so political, or do you kind of feel like you want to take a break through that stuff? Uh, I think the kids, the kids stuff is really useful in terms of wanting to take a break and 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 uh, find some escapism. Two little ducks was very uh, present. It was very as in, like it came out in twenty eighteen and it's about Brexit and the refugee crisis. So it it was very current. And I think at the moment it's so overwhelming. Um, we're all addicted to social media, right? And I spend far too much time on Twitter. And the news cycle is so fast. Mm. Um, and obviously, you know with what's happening at the moment, like four chancellors in four months and 2pm, whatever. Um, it's it's 
it's impossible to document it all. By the time you've written the poem, another thing's happened and that's old yeah. news, right? So what I'm doing at the moment is I'm identifying themes. So, for example, the novel I've been working on for the last three years is, uh, at, at its core, it is anti-racist, but it's looking at sort of working class oppression, white working class oppression, um, but also on the flip side, white privilege and toxic masculinity and the things that the environment that has to exist in order for somebody to potentially go down the path of being a far right activist or a racist or whatever. Similar to how the kid in This Is England is radicalised because his dad died in the Falklands and these mm -hmm. older guys come along and say, well, you should be angry about this, this and this. And that's sort of what I'm working on and that's a theme that unfortunately keeps recycling every decade or every generation. So my work is still political, but I'm taking a step back and not trying to document everything as it happens and maybe just look at core themes that maybe I want to challenge rather than the minutiae of it because Tories are always going to be bastards. Yeah. Sorry to swear in. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's no point me writing a poem slagging off Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, you know what I mean? But I, that's why I'm working on like what whatever core, whatever core issues and also what's my story to tell. So one of the things I was worried about with writing about the refugee crisis is that's not my story to tell. But I wasn't trying to tell their story on their behalf. I was just trying to say, this is what I saw. This is not mm -hmm. on the news. I saw this. You might like to know. Um, but as a, you know, a white, able-bodied man, I'm very aware of, if I'm going to take up a platform, it needs to be for a reason. So I'm looking at things that maybe I could genuinely contribute to, if you know what I mean, in terms of issues. Right. Talking about contributing, I heard you as if on like another podcast, you were talking about how you'd done some work with like the Jeremy Corbyn campaign. At some yeah. point, I think at some point you shared a stage with Paul Weller, and it kind of, yeah, I don't know if the two things were, were part of the same thing, but I pieced them together and I thought yeah. Red Wedge, which is Paul Weller and Billy Bragg, yeah, trying to get kind of a strong Labour government. Which kind of they didn't succeed in at the time under Neil Kinnock, but it kind of came to the fore with Tony Blair. So what I see the now, obviously, I work for Royal Mail, and obviously <laughs> we are going through strikes and stuff like that. And our union, along with RMT, have started up the campaign for Enough Is Enough, which is kind of similar yep. in a way to Red Wedge because it was they're trying to kind of push for a stronger opposition. Yep. To, so the long and short is, is that something that you've been approached to do or that you would like to be involved in in some way? Because it's... it's, oh, it's I'd, I'd, yeah. oh, I'd 100%. Like, I follow them on Twitter and, you know, I've signed up to a mailing list and I'm, you know, want to get along to the demos. I'm well in. Enough is enough looks great to me. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'd love to get involved in. I've not proactively reached out to them just because I've got so much on my plate at the moment, you know, being a new dad and all that. But yeah, yeah. 100%, yeah. Um, that basically what I did it was uh, JC4PM was the tour that we did but it was it was Red Wedge but we were going around theatres performing to like two, three, four thousand people a night um, mm -hmm. comedians like Jeremy Hardy rest in peace um, Shappy Corsandy Mark Steele Sarah Pascoe whatever but then some of the bigger events we had like Ken Loach Paul Weller you know and it, it, it were amazing and for me as a as a political poet to be able to share a stage with those people um, yeah, yeah that, that that's me in my truest form that's my ultimate like 
if you if if of all the weird and wacky things that we've spoken about in my career, if I could pick the one place where I feel most at home, it's on one of those stages, a red wedge stage, and you know, or at a rally. Like, and my dad's a postman. He's, he's my my dad's been a postman since I were a baby. So, you know, I'm very in tune with what's happening with Royal Mail, and I know it's not just Royal Mail, but yeah, mm-hmm. I would love to get back involved. With that. I'd love to roll my sleeves up and get get more involved on the activist side of things. I'd, definitely. I'd, I mean, it just. I've I've noticed it the last couple of weeks, and obviously I've been speaking to you about getting you on the podcast, and I thought it's it's a sort of thing that would be ideal. Uh, for Trying this. out for it, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we're nearly at the end. Obviously, you've touched on a couple of times about your novel that you're writing. So, what what are you saying that we could expect? Like that'll be finished for. <laughs> you're saying that'll be finished for the end of the well, year. I'm hoping. I'm um, hoping that. The fifth, the fifth draft will be finished by the end of this year. Something mm-hmm. I've been working on since August 2019. But you know, if I do finish it by the end of the year, then I'll send it to an agent in January. I don't know how long it'll be before I find an agent who wants to take it on, and then once they want to take it on, I don't know how long it'll be before they find a publisher who might want to publish it. And then if I do find a publisher who wants to publish it, I don't know how long it'll be before the publisher actually publishes it because it might be that they say, right, great, we'll take it on. It's going to come out in two years. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So all I can do is finish writing it and hope that I've not wasted three and a half years. Because the thing is, I've got to the point now where I can't write anything else. I can't write poems. I can't write skint lyrics. I can't. I, I, all I can do is, all I can see in my head is is getting to the finishing line with this novel. But, you know, you should only write things for yourself. And much as I hope it gets published and maybe has some degree of success, um, but obviously that would be the dream. First and foremost, I've written it for myself, and if nothing happens with it and it never gets published, I've loved doing it, and I'm a better writer. So that's what it's yeah. all about, really. Well, um, right. but if yeah, we'll see. If you write stuff for yourself, then people can see the love that's been put into it. Yeah, and also, like, I think if you were only... I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, like, I do a lot of commissions. So we've mentioned, like, Nationwide and Jeremy Corbyn and Leeds United. And I, I do love a commission when I'm writing for someone else. But if you're not writing for yourself at least 50% of the time, then it becomes a bit soul-destroying. And, and ultimately, like, the thing that I love most in the world, apart from my wife and my son, is writing. So if you're not doing it for yourself, like if, you, if you don't have that, then there's no point doing it. And it's a strange life that I've dedicated myself to. My, my wife is also a writer, um, Maria Ferguson. She's a multi-award-winning theatre maker and also a, an esteemed poet as well. And, like, it's not a simple or straightforward life. So if you don't absolutely love doing it, then there's not much point, really. Oh, don't get me wrong. A lot of people do it as a hobby, and that's completely valid. But what I'm saying is if you choose it as a way of life, which it is rather than a career, if it's a way of life, then you've got to love it. So whatever happens with this novel, I have enjoyed doing it. We'll see. And it extends on from one of the poems in Two Little Ducks, basically. It's like one of the poems in Two Little Ducks. I was like, there's more in that. Uh-huh. And I didn't think it was going to be a novel. I thought maybe it'd be a long poem or a, a second collection or a, a stage show. I didn't really know. But the more I started, I kept writing it and kept writing it and kept writing it. I was like, oh, shit, it's a novel. Oh, God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> well, well I'm not fingers, crossed <laughs> we, fingers crossed that we get this out at some point and we, we can all read your novel. Fingers crossed. So last part of the podcast, obviously, it's called Time for Heroes. So I have uh, four heroes, or as many heroes as you want. Some people take, some people have picked like ten. Some people have picked a couple. 
heroes to come for dinner and what you would cook. Why are the heroes to you? Uh, yeah. Sheila Delaney, who wrote A Taste of Honey when she was like 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who can produce a work that good that's endured for so long and inspired so many people at that age just fascinates me. And like, you know, she was a working class Mancunian woman of Irish heritage and she just seems fascinating. So Sheila Delaney, definitely just because I'd love to pick the mind that created that. I love a taste of honey. I think it's amazing. Um, Mm. So Sheila Delaney, number one. Uh, I know he was probably a bit of a knob, but Jim Morrison, I'd just be interested to see what's going on there. I'm like... I used to be obsessed with the doors and I do quite like some of, why, why have I just said that that's such a bad answer uh, <laughs> Sheila right Sheila Delaney definitely right, we'll edit we'll edit oh, yeah, you I'm can keep it in if you want I don't mind it's quite funny um, <laughs> Sheila Delaney I've said that a million times um, Frank O'Hara is a poet that I absolutely love and he wrote a lot about uh homosexual life in New York in the 1960s and I just love Frank O'Hara so again I would love to, I could hear him mm-hmm. speak all night and I really love reading his poems so Sheila Delaney Frank O'Hara um, I think Billie Holiday um, I love listening to Billie Holiday and I think even though she managed to write uh, an autobiography not long before she died I just think she's got so much to say and her story is just so fascinating so I would like to I'd like to Pick Billy Holiday's brains, and um, I'll say Billy Bremner as well. Right, Brilliant. I always uh, like having footballer on the podcast. It's always nice to touch on that. I'd have to say Billy Bremner. Yeah, pictures of him in the. For anyone who doesn't know, one, probably Leeds United's most iconic player, one of the Don, the captain of the Don Revy team that was the best team in the world in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And there's pictures of him in the changing in the changing room after the game, smoking a fag, and I don't know, he's just what a character. About five and a half feet tall, but could take on anyone. Um, yeah, I'd love to. Oh, I've got one last one to throw in. Sorry, David Bowie. Brilliant. David Bowie. He's got to be the most fascinating person that's ever lived. He's almost not human. We went to see the Moonage Daydream film recently, and it's just phenomenal. And I'd just yeah, David Bowie. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant facts. Uh, and what are you cooking them? Are you a good cook? <laughs> no, I try. I've got maybe three or four things that I'm quite good at. Um, my wife's a really good cook, and she really enjoys cooking. I I like to contribute and sort of chip in, but I'm I'm maybe more useful in other areas. I did a chili last night, which was pretty good. Right. I'm all right at a few things, like but you know, I'm not a natural. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of the same. If I'm good at something, then I end up we get the same dinner every. Rotated every three days. Yeah, well, that's it. I'm good at washing up. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Matt. Just before we go, where where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Um, Matt Abbott Poet on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook or mattabbottpoet.com. So it's all just Matt Abbott Poet. It's all the same. Magic. I'll post all the I'll post all the links and all that in the show notes, and Andy can go and find you there, or just what you've said. If you go to mattaboutpoet.com, everything else is on there. All the social media channels, all the books, everything, all the albums, everything is on mattaboutpoet.com. So that's where you want to go. Magic. That's brilliant. Thanks a lot for coming on.
I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly enjoy. <laughs>